This is Canada Reads American Style, featuring two friends who love Canada Reads and Canadian literature. Welcome our host Rebecca from Michigan and Tara from Ontario. Hi everyone, it's Rebecca and I am sorry to report that Tara was unable to join us today, but she has already told me that she can't wait till I get this special interview posted. And it's special because I read this amazing memoir exactly one year ago this month, and I have wanted to speak with the author ever since. I am thrilled to welcome David Crow, author of the award-winning memoir, The Pale-Faced Lie. David spent his early years on the Navajo Indian Reservation in Arizona and New Mexico, and through grit, resilience, and a thirst for learning, he escaped his abusive childhood graduated from college, and built a successful lobbying firm in Washington, D.C. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Rebecca, my pleasure, and it's really great to meet you. Well, we're just going to jump right in, and I will ask for those who have not yet read your memoir, could you tell us a little bit about it? I can. So I was born just about nine months or so after my dad got out of San Quentin, penitentiary for a crime that could have easily gotten him the death penalty. He moved us to the Navajo Indian Reservation so he wouldn't have to check the violent felon box. I mean, anybody who could, who was willing to work on the reservation during that period of time was hired, uh, regardless of their skills, as long as they could drive a truck and, you know, to do anything competent. My very first memory on the reservation is my father saying, we have to get rid of your mother because if you grow up like her, grow up with her, you'll be insane just like her and we have to get rid of her. And the book really begins right there. Yes, it's an incredible opening and the book grabs you from the very beginning sentence. So my next question is, you are closing in on 20,000 ratings and over 2,000 reviews on Goodreads. And I'm wondering, does the response from readers surprise you? It They do. You know, first, the number, most first-time authors who are really a nobody, you know, meaning you're not Michelle Obama or somebody famous, only sell like 600 books and don't even break even. So for the book to go well over 200,000 and still growing, printed in Russian, printed in Lithuanian, Poland has bought it. 20,000 plus Goodreads, almost, I think, nearly 12,000 Amazon. Yes, it's, an, it's, it's astounding to me. And some of the questions I get asked and some of the stories people tell me really bring tears to my eyes. Oh, gosh, I, I can imagine. And, and I was aware that your book had been translated into other languages worldwide. It's just an amazing story. Now, I've watched your Facebook videos where you return to locations from your childhood, and I wondered if that is difficult to do or has it gotten easier over time? Well, that's a great question. There are a lot of weaknesses in my sort of psyche, but one of them is I have practically photographic memory. I can remember phone numbers from four years old, the family car, all kinds of things. And I say that as a backdrop to going back and visiting these places and kind of reoriented myself on one, I'd have a lot of guilt and shame that I should have done better for my family, for my mother, stood up to my dad better. 
But when I go back to these places and realize how young I was, how vulnerable I was, uh, over time, I mean, I've t written notebooks since I was like eight or 10, and I've kept most of them. It's made it easier for me, and it's made it's given me a much better perspective, which is when you're a child, they say childhood's a city you never leave. And if you had a traumatic enough childhood, you need to leave it. You need to see it in a different light. You need to see yourself um, in, in a way that doesn't make you feel ashamed and guilty and horrible about who you are because you start to believe you deserve what happened to you. So to go back and look at these places and visit in a much more, an older, much older in life and a much more balanced view has helped me tremendously, Rebecca, yes. I think that's what really struck me the most is that your parents had such high expectations for you as a child. Uh, that was just really, really painful to read. And, you know, really they had no business as adults. And, you know, and I understand your mother had mental health issues, but they had no business to expect you at that age to take on the kind of responsibility for both of them, really. You know, Rebecca, I agree. You know, there's so many people, and this gets at the comments and letters and notes I've been sent, both from prison, from older people who are very lonely, um, all sorts of people. And most of them, many of them, went through such trauma as young people. Their parents were extremely flawed. And all they did is dump all the flaws on the kids, which is what happened to the Crow children. And the trauma of that is that a lot of times with people, the cycles are very, very hard to break in life because by the time you really are formed, somewhere between six and 10, you kind of have a personality that builds from there. At least that's my opinion. And, you know, a lot of what I read supports that. If your childhood was traumatic enough and your image of yourself is poor enough, you're broken, you don't like yourself, you probably don't love yourself, you hate the people who are raising you, who are supposed to love you, they've abused you terribly, they've used you up, this stays with you. And when you ask about the, the letters and comments that bother me the most, it's generally a, a, a person that's older, who's gave up on ever having an intimate relationship or real strong relationships with friends, family, intimate partners, because they so believed that they were broken and didn't deserve it. They were so... Um, they were told that they were horrible people. They had horrible things done to them and they just were never able to overcome it. And those really upset me because I have a powerful belief. And really the reason I wrote the book is to tell people you can overcome things you don't think are possible, but the process you have to go through to see yourself in a different light and to put in perspective how you reacted based on what was done to you. If you can ever break through and see yourself outside yourself, you have a chance to strengthen your psyche and your self-esteem and start trusting and loving. But it's a hard process. And a lot of people are not able to do it. Was there ever a point in your life that you thought you were 
maybe on a slippery slope and you could just as easily end up being more like your dad? You know, was there ever a fear that, oh my gosh, I'm heading in the same direction? Yes. And, um, and coupled with that, even if I don't want to, I'm still, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I'm just a mini me of him. Uh, I'll never escape this. You know, this will be a stink cloud that I can't outrun. Yeah, I felt that for a very long time. And there's an incident, my readers, I hope they'll read it, in college that really reinforced that, where I faced, confronted my dad in a situation involved what I knew to be murder and where I just thought, Oh my God, I'll never escape being his son. And I went through a lot of my adulthood all the way to very early fifties, unhappy with myself. I mean, I compartmentalized, I could be good at work, probably not a very good parent, not a very good husband, not a very good anything. I tried hard, but when you don't really like yourself and you feel tremendous guilt and shame, it's very hard to see yourself as a good person. So yeah, this chased me for a very, very long time. And I didn't break out of this until decades after, you know, my greatest regret is I didn't break free of this stuff like at 21, but I didn't, I couldn't for whatever reasons. But when I get here from readers that say they never did, they're going to die alone or they could never forgive. They could never forget. They, still hate themselves, they still feel guilty. I guess I feel extremely lucky because um, a super traumatic childhood um, can be a life sentence. You know, it's like they say you'd never know what someone else is going through. And even though you were in your early 50s, when you were able to finally have some clarity, at least thank God you were able to make those changes. I mean, I have a younger sister that really never did. And I, you know, pray that she comes through this every day, but she, she has not. The other thing I'll tell you is that I have a lot of friends, acquaintances all the way back to college, even childhood, that really knew something was very, very wrong. They were still my friends, but they knew I was a very damaged guy. And when I wrote the book, particularly my college friends, I was in a big fraternity and I got an overwhelming response, positive response, and lots of reviews. Oh, this is what was wrong. We always knew something was really wrong. We had no idea. Why didn't you tell us? Well, one of the things that I, anyone who's been through the kind of childhood and background I've been through, you don't tell people. You know, hey, somebody says, hey, my, my dad's my hero or my mom's so sweet. And you feel the exact opposite. You don't share that. You just feel shamed and guilty and sad for yourself. But I didn't tell people. And a lot of my college friends, particularly, and uh, will say things like, "We, oh, you never said anything. And I said, I couldn't. What are you going to say? And how are you going to help me? And how's it going to help my relationship with any of you? You know, you have to rebuild yourself before you can do that. And I hadn't. And, uh, but it was gratifying to hear so many friends call me, write me, visit me and say, Hey, you know, we're proud of you. We're pulling for you. And we knew you were going through something terrible. And thank you for letting us know what it was. And 
we would have helped you more than you know. That part I would disagree because I think when you're young and going through things, even through your 20s, you know, we're young, we're vulnerable, we're still finding our way. And no, I don't think I would have could have told a bunch of people and got any help because I couldn't help myself. You know, it's a, it's just not a good situation to be in. Times are different now. We're maybe more aware of patterns of abuse uh, for children. Did you not think at that time there were any adults around you that could have could have understood what was going on and maybe have been some help? Well, every adult in my life was a huge mess. And I mean, disaster. Whether it was teachers or neighbors or friends, parents, I think there's a few things that I can say. One, grew up on the Navajo Indian Reservation and in a border town to the reservation, Gallup, New Mexico, that was overwhelmed with poverty, racial issues, and Indian reservations like a third world hell, even now. And I say that loving the Navajo people and wanting life better for them. Um, There were no resources. And to be really candid, when you're a kid that has a father who's extremely violent and a mother who's extremely mentally ill, no, no one's going to talk to them and make it better. If someone, and a few times people went to my dad, and, you know, like, hey, your son looks like he's got black and blue welts all over him. He would beat me worse. You can never tell. You can, the, the worst thing you can do is tell a stranger what you're going through because the person who hurt you will hurt you a lot worse. There just was nowhere to go and nothing to do. I have had people say, well, surely you could have thought of something. You know, until you're like 18 and you can legally get like a place to live and vote and work. And you have really very few options. I would love to think that every kid has a mental health and set of counselors and people in their school, their church, and a community that can help them but I know that's not so. And um, there are a lot of kids that just silently suffer. They, They really don't have other choices because anything else they do would probably make their situation worse. Yeah, and I want to be clear that I didn't expect you or your siblings to speak out uh, but I meant more like a teacher or another adult figure in your in your life. Well, he went, there was a principle in the book when you read it. There was a time that I was unwilling to take off my jeans and show my legs for gym class, you know, when I, because my there was so many purple, black and blue and even blood marks on my legs. And so my coach, who is really a good guy. But he just ripped my jeans off and said, you're going to put those gym pants on. And he saw my legs and he just stared and tears in his eyes. And it's a tough Navajo man. And he said, you can go ahead and pull your pants up. So later that afternoon, the principal came to called me into his office, like the superintendent, you know, at the high school, it's like a big deal. And he said, uh, I want you to pull your pants down so I can look at your legs. I said, no. He said, I want you to tell me what's going on with you. And I said, nothing. I just fall down a lot. And he said, I think you're lying. And he, the teacher pulled the jeans down again. And the guy looked at it. And 
I said, I have nowhere to go. I have no mom. At this point, she's long gone. And even if she wasn't, there's nothing she could do. And if my dad finds out about this, it'll all look twice as bad tomorrow. This never happened. Let me put my pants on and go back to school and forget it. And the guy looked at me and he said, if you ever want to have, if you ever want to talk, I'm always here. And I said, I will never want to talk. And there's nothing you can do. So this didn't happen and forget it. Right. And I'm crying. And, and uh, I had people say, well, maybe he could have saved you. No, he couldn't have saved me. No, no. You're, uh, and if my dad had found out about that occasion, uh, you know, he, it just would have been even worse. The no ratting thing, it's almost like a mafia, right? You keep control in a very um, fear-driven organization, whether it's a family or anything else. By If anybody deviates from what they're supposed to do, the punishment is horrendous. So you, you, you don't talk. You don't show any emotion. You always act like everything's okay. And if people ask you how you are, you have a one-word answer. Fine. And that's it. Okay. So full transparency, I cried through your epilogue. It was just so amazing. And I wanted to know, could you talk about the act of forgiveness and what it has meant in your life? And do you think you forgave both your father and your mother? I did. So let me just tell you, so I have a strong personality. I have a temper. Um, I don't carry grudges. I think I'm a really good guy, but you know, I, I have my faults and I know it. So maybe that's a good thing. But um, I was very resentful, very, you know, lot, all the feelings that you would think I would have. But there's an incident in the book, and I don't think this is a spoiler alert. There's one particular house in Gallup, New Mexico that I lived where the most things went wrong in the shortest period of time. Sister tried to commit suicide. My mom was abandoned there. Lots of really awful things. And so being a lobbyist and being allowed to travel at clients in all 50 states, I'd fly across the country, get a rental car and drive to Gallup. And I have lots of people in Gallup I love. And even though I had a bad time there, there's a lot of things I love about Gallup, New Mexico. And then I go to the reservation town. I grew up in between those two. They're only 25 miles apart. So I would sit in front of this house over and over through the decades, always in a different rental car, but, you know, always same old me. And one day a man ran out from the house banged on the car. I was just sitting there staring. And he, he said, what are you doing? I've been seeing you for years and years. You keep coming by this house. You're always in a different car. Sometimes you're dressed differently. He said, I think you're some kind of a weird stalker. And I said, no, no, no. I grew, I lived here. All these bad things happened. And he said, I don't believe you. So I described the inside of the house to a T, right? You have black and green tile that's chipped in the basement. You've got a rust mark on one of the pipes, one of the stairs squeaks. He said, you're that little boy, come in. I walked into the living room. I saw the worst single incident of my childhood. My mom crawled in a fetal position in the corner of that living room on a dirty mattress, very few thin, dirty clothes, dead of winter. 
And long story short, begging me not to abandon her, her oldest son, I was 10. My father coming in, she ran and grabbed me. He grabbed me. My father slammed her to the ground, hit me hard, dragged me into the car. And when he got me in the car, his elbow hit my head right around where my temple is. And it, my head bounced against the window and I never felt it. I never felt anything. And I believe that I had a complete nervous breakdown then and something inside me broke. But when I walked back in that house and looked in that living room for the next eight, maybe 10 hours, I told this man everything that had happened. He was a widower who bought the house after we left. He'd raised three children. He was a simple but very honest and good man, worked for the city of Gallup in a public utilities job, had recently widowed. And um, he was a very kind man. He listened to me. He said, who have you ever told this to? Nobody. He said, well, let me tell you, you, you can't change it, but you can get past this. You can get over this. And a light went on. So I went back to my hotel and had another notebook, wrote the rest of the night, called my father on one ring. He answers on one ring. And I would never call my father for anything. And I said, did it ever bother you what you did to us? And he cursed me out, go to hell, you're a coward, you're mama's boy, you're worthless. Don't give me your revisionist history crap and few F word bombs, slam the phone down. For whatever reason, at that moment, at 53 years old, I forgave him and released. He can't be any different. He's like the dog that barks at the car. He's like, He's this animal that if he could have been any different, he would want to be different. He's miserable, awful. And I realized you were trying to live up as a kid to being cool enough to be good enough for him. And you tortured yourself and guilt and all this. And wait a minute, let him go and let this go. But with it, for whatever reasons, and I do get criticized for this, I forgave him. It's like, you're what you are generations of Crow family members have been this way. Nobody has ever broken the cycle. You're vicious, horrible people that beat on your children and berate each other and are beat on your spouses and you're just bad people. And you can't change, but I can. So I'm going to forgive it and step away and let it go entirely. Called my mother, and that was a much more difficult call but she said, you know, honey, you were my oldest. You abandoned me. You left me on the street. Your dad cut my brake line and tried to kill me. You have a lot to account for. You were never there for me. And you're not there for me now. When I put the phone down from her, forgiving her easily. She was very mentally ill. She's alive at almost 93. She's still very mentally ill. And she can't help who she is. And for her, I was her savior, even though I was 10. You know, she said, you can continue to cut grass and deliver papers because I did that as soon as I could practically crawl out of the house, always working at something. And I realized that her worldview was I was the savior that didn't save her. And I was able to forgive her pretty easily and kind of say, oh, you know, my poor mom, who was always much more of a child than I was. But from those 
from those two conversations, minutes apart, on that day, I began to feel kind of like a little flowering bud that had been in like below zero. And all at once, it's 75 degrees and sunny and fertilizer and water. And I just opened and I became more open with people. I was able to, to tell my story. You know, I never felt like a victim, never felt sorry for myself, never felt like I was any kind of Superman because I am not. Always understood the mistakes I made were mine alone. But I was able to see myself in a much different light. And then when I wrote the book, people say, was it cathartic? Well, the catharsis had already happened. But I wanted people to know you can overcome things you think are impossible. But you will have to go through a transformation. You'll have to work at it in hardest work you will have ever done in your life. You're going to have to see yourself in a different light. You're going to have to see the circumstances you were raised in for what they were. You were a small, helpless kid in a system you could not change. And you're judging yourself against being a strong adult who could do anything they wanted on their own. And that's just not the case. When I was able to really get through that, Life changed for me in a big way. Self-help books didn't help. Therapy didn't help. I read hundreds of these self-help books. You know, write yourself a letter telling the younger you, you, that, you know, I love you. Right? It's like, nah, this is worthless. I had to see myself in a situation with my mom in the fetal position, begging me and my father hitting me very hard after slamming her to the ground and understanding that I broke that day at that moment and hated myself and hated the people who raised me and never felt good about myself from then on. And the only way to feel good about myself, love myself and do that was to go back and understand what happened and see if I could recreate, not, not events, you can never recreate an event, but recreate how I saw myself and what I could have done about it and why I deserve to be free of both of them and free of what happened to me and free to be a good guy and a happy guy and a guy who could break the cycle for his wife and his children and to be a positive influence to friends and others. And I was able to do that, but I backed into it. There was nothing organized. I just worked and worked and worked and like I just stumbled into this situation where I could literally see myself younger and see myself older and go, oh, that's what went wrong. And that's what needs to be fixed. So in that process, did you forgive yourself as a child who had no power or control over anything? That was the biggest piece. And I didn't know it, but couldn't forgive myself till I forgave the people who did it to me. Now, can, can I explain that? like it's a math equation or some sort of logical sequence. I cannot. But once I forgave my parents, really seeing them for what they were and seeing that they could never change and seeing that generations of their families on both sides were the same people, right? They're horrible, toxic, mean, unhappy, unfulfilled people. They were Dust Bowl Okies. They were 
depression age, they, they just, no one was ever happy. No one smiled, no one laughed. People were angry all the time. Kids were used as chattel and as ways to kind of vent your anger and frustration. And the one thing you wanted to make sure is those kids never did better than you, by God, because they owned you and you were nothing. And so I could forgive that because they were a product of that. And the, the really epiphany was, oh, but I don't have to be that. I don't have to be the next generation of cruel, angry SOBs that do this to my kids and hate myself all the way till I die. I really don't have to do that. I can change that. The brain is plastic. It is changeable. You can see yourself in a different way, but you're going to have to work real hard at it because you're going to have to understand why you saw yourself as such a defective, broken, unhappy, unlovable person first before you can ever change that. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that because as readers, we want you to heal and we need to, to see that. So thank you for sharing. Now, my next question is, you have spent many years mentoring others, and I assume you have had readers share their own childhood trauma with you. What do you say to them? Well, you know, I always tell them, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a therapist, I'm not anything. But when I get letters from prisoners saying, I was raised by a vicious father that was in a penitentiary, and now I'm in the my third stand of 10 years in the big house because I can't be anything different. I write them. I always write every letter. Prisoners can't email you or do any of that. It's handwritten letter with pencil. So I write them back by hand and mail it to their prison. And I say, I understand why you're where you are. I understand that you were taught that the only way to be, you know, to be successful is to steal, hurt people, kill people, whatever you did. But you can honestly, you're old enough, smart enough that you can start making really good decisions. One guy said, my kids will hate me on my deathbed and may not show up. And I said, no, you're going to get out. You're going to make a bunch of good decisions. You're going to at least make some restitution with the mother of your children. Whether she accepts you or not, you're going to be as supportive as you can of those children. And you're going to make a ton of good decisions. It's going to be hard. And maybe some people will never forgive you and all of that. But on your deathbed, your children are going to say, there's my hero. You have no idea what he overcame to be who he is. So there's there's those kind of letters I try to tell them that I think they can change. The ones that are much harder for me is... uh, A lot of times will be people in their late 60s or, you know, enough into their life that the the connecting and having a significant other and children and all those things have either passed them by or they've blown it to the point where they have no relationship with any of those people. And they'll always say the same thing. I never learned to love. I never learned to trust. I never learned to think of myself as a good person. And I always write them and say, look. I get that childhood is a city you can never leave. You were told you were fat or stupid or ugly or whatever. Maybe all of the above, but none of it's true. 
And you're going to have to do the real work of understanding that the people who did this to you had a vested interest in keeping you broken and keeping you down. Your job is to see yourself differently. I bet you have coworkers and friends and others that adore you, that think you're a really good person who doesn't have very much self-confidence, who has no sense of worth. But you can work on these things. You can develop these things. And will every person that you are vulnerable to be worthy? No. But be healthy enough to, when that happens and somebody is toxic, to move away. They'll be good people. You'll find them. You'll connect. But you're going to have to change how you see yourself. You're seeing yourself as a child who never would ever have any good qualities, never be worthy. And it's simply not true. Don't give power to the people whose only job was to keep you down. Do not give them that power. You have the power to undo it. And you can start today. Wow, gosh. Um, those are really powerful words. Thank you again for, for sharing that. Uh, now, my, my last question is whether or not there is another book on the horizon or does a pale-faced lie satisfy your need to tell your story? Yeah, I'm not ready to talk about it yet, but yes, I do. I love writing and you know, I will do one spoiler alert. Um, I've been encouraged to write more stories about my dad's prison. You know, he had a hundred, when you're in San Quentin Penitentiary, the, the, the talk you have in the big prison yard is extraordinary. But my wife and children have said, look enough about this. Um, we're, we're really pretty, you know, they didn't particularly like my dad and there's a lot of reasons not to. And uh, enough's enough. So, but there are a lot of ways to direct, you know, um, another book. And there's a lot of ways to express, I think, themes that people are interested in. And I want to continue to write. And I, it's, it's taken me a while to kind of figure out what the next thing is, but I, but I have. And I hope on our next podcast, I'm able to share it with you. All right. Excellent. We would love to have you back. And I just want to say to our listeners who haven't yet read the book, it is a compelling read. I promise you, you will not be able to put this book down. But it's not just how fascinating this story is about David's life. It's also the writing. It is descriptive. It is evocative. It draws you in and paints a picture as if you can almost feel yourself there. It's incredible. It really is nonfiction at its best. I'd love that. And I should give my publisher credit. She pushed me very hard to rewrite, 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 and taught me creative writing in a way that makes it compelling and interesting and clear. And I owe Sandra um, a, a big debt. And uh, thank you for saying that. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I hope the people on the on the podcast will read it and let me know what they think. And I will look forward to being with you again. And it's been my pleasure. David, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you for joining us on our bookish journey. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing Canada Reads American Style wherever you listen. 
You can connect with the podcast and Rebecca on Instagram at Canada Reads American Style and with Tara at On a Branch Reads. Until next time, keep reading.